The Tea Stop In podcast series is inspired by the memory of the last surviving founder of the Australian Cinematographer Society, my friend, the late John Leake ACS. When he and his wife Marion retired from the film industry, they bought a little motel outside Sydney and it became a tradition for cinematographers and other filmmakers to stop in and have relaxed conversations about the industry and the craft of cinematography. It earned the nickname of the Tea Stop Inn. This series sets out to recapture the spirit of those conversations, but this time we're inviting you to listen in. The Tea Stop Inn. Peter James, ACS ASC, has a remarkably diverse filmography over five decades as director of photography. He's technically clever, creatively fearless, a naturally gifted teacher, and one of the nicest people in the industry. Peter, welcome to the Tea Stop Inn. Oh, thanks very much for having me. I've yet to come across someone in the industry who has a boring story of how they got started. You've had an absolutely extraordinary career. How did your career get started? Well, I'm dyslexic and um, at school was a torture. You know, I was like a popular kid at school, but uh, captain of the class and all that sort of stuff. But study was just a nightmare and uh, not being able to read or add up or, you know, write properly. And, and dyslexia hadn't been invented then. So I was in a class with a whole lot of uh, Maltese, Italian and Greek kids learning English for the first time, where English is their uh, second language. And um, a cousin came for dinner one night, John Cleary, who's an author, and he said, what are, what are you gonna, what's Peter going to do? And they said, oh, don't, we don't know. He can't really go back to school. It's going to be too hard for him to do the leaving. So we got, they got talking and they said, well... What's he interested in? And this is always walking around with his box brownie taking photographs and, you know, having the kids walk around with candles and flashlights and things and, you know, doing long time exposures and things. So, um, well, he said maybe he'd be interested in photography. So he got me a a summer job at the uh, Christmas holidays at Supreme Sound. It was much better than my job in the uh, hardware store dusting paint cans <laughs> which I, and weighing nails into, pa- into paper bags, which yeah. uh, always tore. <laughs> that, was, that was always terrible. From the day one, I just loved it, you know. Wow. And I remember mum tucking me into bed and she said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to win the Academy Award for cinematography. <laughs> and I'm still trying. <laughs> I'm running wow. out of, I'm running out of time. So Supreme Sound was it was quite a big operation, wasn't it? Well, not in, in, not huge, but um not by Hollywood standards. Yeah. It was a very much a but mu- by Australian a, standards. A, a, a mum and pop sort of operation. Yeah. They had their own laboratory, which was a big deal. Mm. Tom Nurse ran that and uh, and then they did colour as well. There was black and white initially when I started and then colour came in. That was a big deal, getting colour processing machines. But they had their own sound set up and theatres and uh, uh, stages. Uh, we did commercials and um, trade films and documentaries. We didn't really do any dramas. There was one drama came through. Uh, mostly it was the commercial stuff. And that, that was good. We were busy and shot a lot of stuff. And, and fortunately for me, there were terrific cinematographers working there. I was George Lowe's assistant and um, oh, the Mick Borneman was there and uh, Andy Fraser and Graham Lind, I did a lot of work with Graham and uh, Graham was of a new style of lighting. He was not the old black and white Hollywood style with, you know, you, a, you know, a 10K key with a 
top chopper on it and yeah. all that sort of stuff, cookie patterns for the back wall and things like that. That was very traditional old style. Whereas um, Graham was of the new new age, influenced by the English um, cameraman like uh, Jeffrey Unsworth, where it was more naturalistic, mm. uh, available light, uh, which is what we what most people use today. All the younger ones there, David Gribble and Guy Ferner and uh, Russell Boyd came along and joined us there. Russell came from a documentary background, so we just went for that naturalistic style. I left there after I was about 21, I think, by the time I left. I was 15 when I started. Wow. Yeah, very young. God, I was a baby 15. Too <laughs> totally naive, and um, then I went to work with Carl Kaiser at Artransa on Riptide, and he was in the old school too. He was all yeah, lots of five Ks and two Ks everywhere. Babies, yep. everything had barn doors and double nets, half nets, uh, cutters, French flags. Everything had something on it. Every light was controlled and cut. As a result, you got a million shadows, and the boom swingers always had a nightmare <laughs> trying to thread their boom in between. The, uh, the lights and yeah, yeah. they always stayed in there on their Mole Richardson boom thing with the, oh, yeah. with the pole out while they were lighting and moving it around to make sure they weren't getting any shadows. So wow. It was quite complex, yeah. And so where did you go from, from there? Well, then I went and operated or... Yeah, operated on Barrier Reef, which is a television series. Johnny Williams was lighting that, pouring stacks of mini brutes straight in on the actors. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely terrible lighting. <laughs> Probably the worst lit show in Australia's history. And uh, the actors, I remember Rowena Wallace walking in behind the steering wheel one day with eight mini brutes poured into her and uh, she passed out. Oh, no. Yeah, didn't even get a line out. It was terrible. You know, working up in the tropics in the sun, he's countering with, you know, eight diachroic minibrids. Uh, the actors couldn't see anything. And was that because of the stocks yes. or zooms? 16 electrochrome zooms. Yeah. Um, uh, the Germans wanted the faces to be balanced to the highest level. Wow. It was a, te- it was a technical requirement, which, yeah. was, which was absolute rubbish. You just had to stand your ground and say, no, we're not doing that. But they did and, and it, looked, it looked horrible. But I did a did second unit for a while, which was great fun. Uh, then went on to do a thing called um, Roll Up, which has never been finished. It was Jimmy Sharman uh, photographing his dad, Jim Senior, with the boxing troupe up in North Cairns, up in Queensland, Mariba. We did the shows. I was with um, uh, Ron Lowe, Stringy Lowe. Jim was directing it. And Harry Miller was putting up the money. Anyway, Harry went broke because of Patrick Weidmark was going to do Sleuth in the theatre and the theatre was already booked and Patrick committed suicide. So he was left with a theatre with no show to go into. So all our money dried up. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and the film was never finished, unfortunately. Wow. Shape, we'd love to see that footage now because it's, it's all now late 1970s period footage, which would be 35 mil. Eastman mm. colour. It would look pretty good, I think. It'd be really classic to re to edit that now would be a great thing to do. I must try and get Jim to do it. It would be amazing. Yeah. So when did you start as as director of photography? Uh, well, my first thing was Willy Willy. I think I won the, the award in 1969, a long, long time ago, yeah. We shot on short ends down in Braidwood. Mm. It was Chips Rafferty's last film, my first wow. film, and Pamela Anderson was in it. It was her first film. And she went wow. on to, to do Not the Nine O'Clock News and married Billy Conley. So and then became a uh, psychologist, I think, or yeah. a psychiatrist. And yeah, so she's done well. And so mm. obviously Billy has. And, yeah. But it was a it was great film. Like it was a really, uh, Tony Buckley made the film, he edited it, and he really made it. Greg Rabbit directed it. But Tony found shots on the editing room floor that he just made into sequences. 
and uh, like when I was running the camera in, rolled it on some sky and the camera was panning as I was rolling it in and he used it in a sequence. You know? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, that's clever editing. I thought, yeah. I thought, when did I shoot that, Tony? He said, oh, well, it was, a, it was a camera run in. <laughs> Right, <laughs> pretty clever. Yeah, yeah. That's, when the, that's when the editor really does save your ass, you know, <laughs> make you look good. It's easy to forget now, you know, about short ends and oh, yes. the reality oh, of yeah. that on, on low budget productions. Uh, we had a we had a garbage bin next to the camera, so we'd, we'd load forty or sixty feet, and if we didn't have a print on that magazine, I just open the side of the magazine and pull the film off and throw it in the bin. <laughs> hand, the mag- hand the magazine to the loader. Poor loader, God, he just about had a nervous breakdown. Load, yeah. loading. Lots of we had, you know, little of two hundred foot magazines as well as um, half a dozen four hundred foot rolls for the whole film. All the rest were short ends, hundreds and hundreds of short ends. But by the end of the day, the garbage bin be half full of NG takes. Wow! So it saved us on processing. <laughs> I'm sure it's absolutely mind-boggling to to people coming up through the ranks now that have only ever shot on digital, where it's, it's no big deal. Yeah, well, it was it was tricky because you you didn't know where the film came from and what condition it was in. We tested mm. some of it to yeah. see that what hadn't been X-rayed or there wasn't fogged or things like that. But you couldn't test every little bit. There were literally boxes and boxes of cans, 150 feet in or, or as I say, 40 feet. We'd even load 40 feet, which is like ridiculous. It's like one take, you know. But in the film days, that was a way of making a low-budget film. Oh, yes. Like we couldn't have afforded the film and the processing because it was like a dollar a foot, I think, and it was a dollar a foot to get processed. So it was expensive. And the budget, it was a no-budget film, literally, you know, very, very, very low-budget Everybody slept in, you know, one big house and it was pretty <laughs> all students and it was yeah. all pretty rough, you know. But that got you your start as director of photography. Winning the Millie was um, a, a fantastic thing. It got me recognised as a serious cinematographer. How do you think that happened that you were able to do work of that standard on, on such a tiny film? Well, it was um, it's quite inventive. Like the look of it was... I was, I was using um, uh, pink chiffon nets. We did a fair bit of high-speed stuff as well, which is, you know, on a, on a low-budget film. Not, not high speed on short film. ends. On high speed on short <laughs> ends is pretty pretty scary. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we did circular dollies on a carousel and we had, wow. we made up, Roger made up this, the grip made up this track, which was just out of bent water pipe. We just got water pipe bent and got some lumber and made a curved track. And that was, that was pretty exciting. Put the Elamac on that. Wow. <laughs> now that was, it was, some of the photography is quite inventive. So I guess because it was such a low budget film, there was probably in some ways more scope to take risks and be creative. Yeah, it was, it was seen as a, like a very avant-garde film mm. you know it was, it was sort of a breakthrough look i'd use these on commercials i'd use these diffusions on commercials i went on to do like singapore airlines and things like that using the same my mother's hairnet you know, <laughs> the, the pink chiffon i was getting worried that the pink chiffon was getting cut up and i was running out of it but, uh, what, what am i going to do with that when i run out it certainly was this uh, it developed a new style of photography which was mm. which was interesting so uh, people were really interested in it and liked it so that was good and then I went on to do Caddy after that. Again, Tony Buckley was now the producer and the editor of it, I think. I think he, yeah. I think he edited it, I'm not sure. And Donald Crombie did that. And I, 
I'd done some documentaries with Donald. We got we all got along famously. Went on to do The Irishman after that and uh, The Killing of Angel Street. So we did three films in a row, which was fantastic. Wow. But uh, Caddy was um, a beautiful film. I wanted it to look like a Jeffrey Unsworth film. And I shot a documentary down in Melbourne on Don Quixote when Jeffrey came out to photograph that. I worked down there for about a week and then I thought, well, I'm not going back to Sydney. I'm going to stick around and watch Jeffrey Light yeah. now that I've finished shooting. And sent the gear back to Sydney and I uh, stayed around and slept on the electrician's couch and, you know, jumped in their truck in the morning and went out to the set and would climb up into the rafters of the studio, which was an old hangar out at Essendon, and um, lie there and watch him light, try and stay out of the way. Masterclass. <laughs> it was. It was my masterclass, yeah. And Jeffrey sort of taught me that the most valuable thing that you can learn in ever is to allow yourself to dream and to have that image of the big picture of what the film's going to look like. I could see he put two brood arcs together side by side and there was a scene where Rudolf Nureyev came in on a cart. They led a, a donkey led a cart with him on the back with a girl and they jump off and then they do a pas de deux across the stage and um, he asked Tony Tegg to cut the light so that there was only one shadow in the middle from the two brutes. Well, we all knew that was impossible. You know, the grips were up there with, you know, platforms and scaffolding and trying to get flags out there mm. to make these cuts really sharp and very accurate. They did a pretty good job, but it wasn't perfect and it never would be perfect. But it didn't stop the idea of the concept of having this single source, you know. Today you get one of these big sunlight things and stick it up there and it yep. spread everywhere and, you know, you can box it in and you'd only have one shadow. But those lights hadn't been invented then. Yeah, yeah. They just had brood arcs, which had to be trimmed and men are up there as well, you know, putting the carbons in. Sometimes I thought, well, I've only got three redheads and a blondie. What, what am I going to do? And, and I thought, oh, I really only want one light source here. So I'd put them all together and put them through a paper frame, some tracing paper or some, some plastic or something, make it uh, look soft and come from that one direction. So that uh, Jeffrey had a definite sort of way he wanted the film to look. And um, I thought, well, that's really allowing yourself to have a vision for every film. And the film should be different. Uh, the vision should be different for every film because they're all different stories. They're all different scripts. So when I read a script... I sit there and being dyslexic, it's a nightmare. I hate reading scripts. I um, get up early in the morning and, you know, make a cup of tea, turn all the lights on, sit at the table with the script and a pad next to it and uh, make notes. If I if I want to make notes, I draw mm. all over the script and colour it in. I have, you know, coloured pens always and uh, make notes when it's night and day and this, that and the other. So I've, by the end of the reading of the script which takes me about a day. Mm. Normal people would read a script in two hours. But I make the film while I'm reading it and I'm casting the actors and I'm fantasising about what locations there might be. And so it's all playing out. It's all playing out, like the, what the wardrobe's happening and mm. what, how their makeup is and how their hair's going to be. And, like, I'm, I'm in all the departments, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I've got them dressed in something different, whatever. But it's just how I visualise the whole thing. Later on, you've got to collaborate with the wardrobe and, you know, makeup and hair people and production designer who's, who's really your best friend on a, as a mm. cinematographer yeah. on a film set. They're, they're the best people to have on your side, which is great. That's really, yeah. that's, I love that. I love that collaboration. And, and they, of course, they all, they all bring something to the story. But just allowing, this is a very self-indulgent period reading the script 
and allowing yourself that don't worry about the budget, don't worry about, you know, the actors or the location or where Just it, where let your going. imagination Just run with it. Just let your imagination run wild and yeah. say what should this story look like and really be honest to the script, really, really be honest to the script. There's a joke around that cinematographers never read the script. Well, you know, it may be true on television series or something <laughs> like that. But on a feature film or on a short film or, or anything, really, you have to read the script. Mm. And you've got to, that's what you're making. And you have to be totally honest to the script. I wonder whether there's a, a strange sort of advantage in your dyslexia in that it forces you to do that process more slowly than perhaps most people would. And so there's more time for the imagination to kind of run. Wild. Oh, I think it's an advantage, yeah. It, and, and there's a lot of uh, dyslexic cinematographers, mm. like quite a few, more than average in professions. I heard an interesting um, interview on uh, Radio National on the ABC. There's an architectural firm in America that only employs uh, dyslexic architects and, wow. dra- and draftsmen, which is pretty extraordinary because they mm. say we see in the third dimension better. I have no problem imagining what the angle's going to look like from up there in the corner of the room or mm. off, off the balcony or where the light is going to be to come from that angle, what it will do and how it will affect the subject. It's absolutely effortless for me. It's always always, wow. always has been, really, yeah, yeah. Yeah, even, even from very young. And I suppose that gave me an advantage in understanding light. You know, mm. I remember when I first realised the difference between a 2K and an Inky Dinky, you know, and, and the inverse square law. When that penny dropped with that, I thought, that's what it's about. Yeah. That's, I get it. I get <laughs> it now. I know I know why they're using these lights, you know. It's all about light fall-off and shadows and all that sort of stuff. So and that and coming up in that black and white lighting time in that old classic 40s style lighting. It was a wonderful period to see that sort of film noir look, you know, mm. to work through it, which is very hard to do film noir, by the way. It's, in colour it's almost impossible to do film noir. Yeah. You can, but the, the script really has to call for it. Mm. I tried it on one film and it just didn't work. I had to modify it because it was it was, it was too um, too self-indulgent and it was too look at me, look at me. Right. It was, yeah, all, yeah. It was all about cinematography. I don't want the viewer to even think about the cinematography. Yeah. It should just be part of the story. Just part of the experience. Yeah. You shouldn't bring the audience, you shouldn't jar them out of the picture. So when you did start shooting films, because you'd been assisting and operating for so many Mm. different cinematographers, did you find that gave you a larger pool of ideas to draw on? Oh, yes, it was fabulous. Like I I was assistant for a long time. I think I assisted for eight years and then I operated for again for five or six films as an operator, plus uh, did stacks of documentaries, sometimes with other other cameramen. So I'd, I'd mostly collaborated with directors of photography. So I had a chance to see, oh, like Brian Proben uh, operated for him, which was absolute joy. You know, he taught me all about what colour light is and how colour – he was a painter. Right. And oh. Br- Brian did um, Poor Cow and Downhill Racer, two films in that British classic style in the, in the 70s, which were just spectacular films, which I loved. And he was in that from that school of English soft lighting. Uh, he, he just taught me everything about colour. I, I don't know any more about colour than what Brian taught me. He was sensational. He was a, he was a master of colour. He's <laughs> so funny. He'd say, if the director says he doesn't like the shot, you say, now, is it too tight? And they say, no, no, it's not too tight. Is it too loose? And I said, oh, yes, maybe it is a bit. Maybe maybe it needs to be looser or something. So <laughs> he'd ask these questions, you yeah, know. Yeah. yeah, are we too high? Are we too low? You know, is it too, too bright or too dark? Eventually, you'd <laughs> it was trying to quantify what. Yeah, like diagnosing it. Yeah. 
yeah. such a funny way to do it, you know. <laughs> but but he was right. He was a very good teacher. He, he ended up working at the film school for a while. Right. Anybody who was taught by Brian will remember it because he was very insightful. Yeah. And loved film. He loved you know, he loved all the classics and you, know, you could talk on them forever. So something you just briefly touched on there was communicating with the director. What was one of your earliest standout memories of collaborating with the director? I think the film um, uh, The Wild Duck was an interesting film with uh, Liv Ullman and Jeremy, Jeremy Irons. Danny Batterham was operating for me and I decided to use the light flex on that to simultaneously fogged the film at the same time with different coloured gels and that was very tricky. It wasn't until the day before that we actually cracked it and got it, got it right. I was ready, wow. to th- ready to throw it away. So that, that attached to the camera and oh, put did, fog, yeah, fog behind the lens? No, uh, no it, uh, through the front. Through the front. You had to shoot through a 45-degree angled glass which was um, had a light box on the top and it reflected the light off the, of the light box down in and back into the lens. So this glass had to be absolutely clean otherwise you got dust on your image or the, the dust would catch the light even more and make a spot. Mm. I used sepia like a a brownie coloured sort of gel for most of it but for candlelit dinners I used a yellow gel Mm. and for night I used blue. And I guess in the days before digital grading fogging was one of the few ways you could control the contrast of of the image. Well I I wanted this to look like an Edwardian photograph album. I wanted it to look like mm. a sepia, an old-fashioned sepia photograph album. It's Ibsen and, well, originally it's set in Scandinavia, but they set it in uh, Tasmania. We shot it mostly in a studio in Sydney, North Sydney, and uh, a couple of little locations, nothing nothing much. But wonderful working with Liv Ullman, of course, and Jeremy. Yeah. They're both great actors. Mm. Um, but Henri Saffron was directing and coverage was um, one of those things he'd ask the actors to do it and we'd just watch it and then Henri would end up in one corner of the set, I'd be in another corner of the set and Danny would be in the other. So we'd be all, <laughs> you know, sometimes looking at one another through <laughs> through the actors. Yeah. We weren't all huddled. Uh, sometimes we'd all huddle together in one corner and agree that that would be the corner. But usually the first run through, we'd sort of say, oh, well, you should look at it from here because I think it's it, mm. this, this is a, yeah, the mastering seems to work best if they... And this was a style where the actors are given free range to do what, mm. whatever they want to do. So that's, that, that, that's that, quite difficult, yeah, you know, yeah. rather than saying to them, uh, like, whereas Bruce Beresford, Bruce will say, oh, no, you walk in, you're going to sit down, you're going to just be there. You know, you're gonna, well, you're going to be walking backwards and forwards here. That's what you'll be doing. He has a definite plan for what the actors are going to do. But when the actors sort of do their thing I wish the the director would say no I think we need to and this sort of brings up coverage you know Mm. which is another thing which is quite a uh, the American Hollywood standard you know seven shots you know the wide shot the medium shot the uh, over the over the shoulders and the the close-ups and all that sort of stuff that you have to do on every every setup, mm. unless you've got a director who is completely controlling and says, "No, we're not doing that. We're going to do all this in one take, or we're going to do two developing masters with two close-ups, or something like this." If the director isn't powerful and telling the studio what's happening, you have to do this compulsory coverage, which is very tedious, and it also wears the actors out because mm. they're doing it so many times. Like actors do love to do it again and again. Yeah. But there's a point where the performance really suffers. Same way as in when, when one actor is fluffing their lines on Meet the Parents, the famous actor was fluffing his lines and the other actors were exhausted. And yeah. the, you know, they, were get, they were getting worse as he, as he was getting better. Very unfair to the other act, fellow actors. 
It's, it seems like it's something that's kind of migrated across from TV, that attitude of we've got to have absolutely every possible bit of standard coverage on everything. Well, then the studio can make it. Once Which is why that, that was kind of the standard with TV. Yeah. The, so the, 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 the network could remake it. The director doesn't have any control. See, director's really got to take control back and say, I'm, no, I'm shooting it this way and I'm not doing coverage on everybody. I know the person's got the dialogue, but I want to see what that dialogue, how that's affecting the other person. So I'm only going to do a close-up on the other person. Person. And that's what matters. And that's the story. Like this business is just cutting with the dialogue. You, know, <laughs> you see that in American films all the time. They just yeah. whoever's got the lines got the shot. Well, that's rubbish. It's either badly written. <laughs> Or more so, badly directed. No, oftentimes both. Yeah. Doing uh, Diabolic with Jeremiah Chichik, I said, Jeremiah, I said, it's really lovely when we see Sharon Stone and Isabella Jani together in the same shot because there's like the, the yin and the yang. There's the good and the bad. One's mm. the good woman, the other's the bad woman. Sharon was the evil one and Isabel was the saintly one. Isabel was a, her character was a, a nun and uh, she'd not cut her hair since she'd come out of the convent and, uh, and Sharon was this vamp and mystery to the husband. Her lighting really looks best when she's lit with like Harel type lighting, classic 40s lighting with a high key and, you know, quite dark shadows and quite harsh light. Whereas Isabel looked best when, as if she was, had swallowed a light bulb when she was <laughs> glowing from inside. Yeah. So her lighting was four pieces of poly bouncing and different, you know, we'd control them with a dimmer because it was very subtle to get the, the right balance that we didn't underlight her too much and yeah. so on. And they're both beautiful women, like completely beautiful. But then saying to Jeremiah that it's nice to have them both in the same shot, well, <laughs> How did you handle that? Oh, I had to keep Isabel's light off Sharon, which yeah. was, you know, quite tricky. It was quite a challenge. Because when you get, like get that the, soft, it's going to Oh, bounce it's going to go everywhere. Yeah, yeah, four pieces of poly, yeah. And it, and it's... It was like doing Vanity Fair covers every every bloody day, like all the all day long. Yeah, yeah. It was exhausting. That's the hardest lighting I've ever done. The most difficult lighting job it was all completely cosmetic, and they were both mm. very demanding. Yeah, it'd be quite unforgiving that kind of that level of lighting. Yeah, they had just had they had to look perfect. Yeah, was know. it satisfying in the end? Yes, it was. It, it, it looked it looked good. I think it just, I haven't seen. I must watch it again. I, I generally don't watch my films again but somebody else talked about it the other day saying how much they thought they thought it was better than the original Diabolic which I disagree I think the original old French one was was much better but um, it, it was more mysterious and mm. um, the other interesting thing about that film for me is that it was one of the very first ACS screenings that I attended after I joined oh, right. I was um, working at a regional TV station and I remember going to that screening and you were talking about exactly those lighting issues and at that point in time I was kind of working in a world where you know, you put up a 2K and maybe bounce it off a bit of poly and that was that, that was lit. And it was just so exciting to hear that level of precision and Oh, yeah, we designed creativity lights for them. Yeah, we designed a lighting. special light for Sharon and we had special overhead rigs for dinner scenes which were they were specially built. You know, there was a lot of stuff designed yeah, yeah. for that. Yeah, I had a fabulous gaffer on that. Yeah, absolutely great. Yeah. Which was that's a big help when you've got a when you've got a great, oh, yeah. a great gaffer. Yeah. yeah, makes a huge difference. Yeah, doesn't no, it? it was fantastic. He was good, and we we had underwater lights in a pool that were at the end sequence where they're trying to kill one another, and um, <laughs> that was a hell of a shoot. <laughs> um, we had to heat the pool up, and um, the camera was in a big fish tank 
box yeah. with a Panaflex with a zoom lens on it in, <laughs> wow. a, in a fish tank. Yeah. And that was good because yeah. we could control the zoom and we could change the sizes and we could keep the water level right on the level of the... Yeah. It was very exciting and they could splash around and wow. dunk one another and we could go down with them as they got dunked and the grips would push the box into the water and go in. It was, um, it was great. Great, great fun with the underwater lights hitting them and so on. Very dramatic. So I guess coming from around about the time of that film, there was quite a number of years where you were fairly regularly going back and forth between often quite dark films like that or mm. Black Robe and very kind of light Hollywood comedies. Mm. Was that a conscious choice or was just, that just coincidence? It sort of just happened that way. Um, some of it was working with Bruce um, uh, Beresford. I'd, I'd do a film for him and then I could then do another film while he's in post-production doing, right. the, doing the editing. Okay. So I'd work with another director and sometimes they were comedies. I didn't really want to do comedies. I'd, yeah. you know, I'm not old enough to do comedies. <laughs> <laughs> my, my career's not at an end yet. Um, but uh, they offered you such an obscene amount of money. Um, <laughs> I thought, well, I can do a comedy. <laughs> so once, And once you do one comedy then and it's a huge success, like Meet the Parents, then everybody sends you their script. You know, they all want... You know, suddenly the comedy. You're, you're the comedy guy who's got the he knows how to do comedy comedy is a completely different beast to drama i used to say the crew uh wide as funny wide you, in terms of coverage or lenses angle just yeah, yeah. you know like you, you don't go too tight you yeah. know the joke will work better in a like a cowboy because you get the body language from the other actor who's, mm. who's the butt of the joke or whatever yeah so you 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 got to analyse the situation, whereas in drama it's always a close up that gets the money. But in in comedy it can be a medium shot or a wide shot that's that's the funny bit. So how did you approach lighting for comedy? I, again, on Meet the Parents, the director wanted it as flat as piss on a plate, <laughs> and that's not my that wasn't my style. Yeah. And I thought, oh. God, this is a nightmare. Plus, um, Ben's eyes are very deep set back in his head, so you had to have two lights, one for each eye, to get it, to get him lit. So that was a challenge, and you need to see their eyes, otherwise you don't get the joke. You don't know what yeah, yeah. you don't know what they're thinking. So it's important to see their eyes. But I, I kept saying to the director, like, this is as flat as I can light. I can't, <laughs> I can't light any flat. I'll be, I'll be standing on top of a light box if, yeah. if, if, the, if I go any flatter. You know? <laughs> so it is a very flat film and as a result the next film I did with Bruce was um, in Vienna Bride of the Wind and I said to Bruce I'm not going to use any fill light on this film is that okay with you? You need a break from it for a while. He said that's fine go for it. So I just lit lit with these big soft saucers outside basically very naturalistically and, and with a natural fall off into black be lovely. Yeah, it was lovely. Yeah. It was set in Vienna in 1900 to 1920 and including the war and it's a be- that's a beautiful looking film. Yeah, beautiful costuming and, and Herbert Pinter's uh, art direction design is fantastic. Herbert's done several, I've done several films with Herbert. The Black Robe was him too, you know. Wow. I said to Herbert on Black Robe, I said, I'm using El Greco as my reference for this film. <laughs> he said, good. <laughs> <laughs> So the faces were long and, you know, often I didn't use any light. I just put black on the ground to stop the snow from bouncing up into their face. So just to make it a bit shadowy and darker. Mm. Just I used 4x4 four four blacks to, to negative fill because it was, it was all overcast and snowing and it was just a very flat whiteout. Yeah, yeah, so I had, you had to shape the face. So yeah. and, and the moment you put a light on it, it looked fake. It didn't, so all you could do is take light away. The thing is to take light away, yeah. Just negative fill and uh, that worked, mm. yeah. 
that director cinematographer relationship is a can be a very very powerful one that collaboration between you and bruce beresford has been going for for a long time now and yeah. has produced some extraordinary films 13 films 13 films yeah. it's um it's it is amazing, one of the really. one of the great collaborations yes yeah. what's it like working with bruce oh it's heaven really i'm never happier than when i'm working with bruce we see films exactly the same way though sometimes now i would like his coverage to be slightly different. I hope he's not listening to this. <laughs> um, but um, I remember like doing Driving Miss Daisy was our first film and what a hell of a film to start with. Yeah. You know, it goes on to win the Oscar. Yeah. yeah. Bruce wasn't even nominated for that film. And then we did a film in Africa called Mr Johnson. Then we did The Black Robe and it wasn't until The Black Robe that Bruce took any of my suggestions. Really? Yeah. I would suggest angles and suggest coverage and suggest... Things and you say, oh no no no, it's okay. No, we'll do it this Already way. Already got it figured out. Yeah, got it. He, and he does. He has it. He, he has it all figured out. And he he draws little storyboards. They're pretty basic, but you can say, oh Bruce, that's on a fifty, and then that that's on a hundred. He said, oh yep, that's it. Yeah. Wow, that you can tell that you, from you the storyboard. You can tell that from these really really scratchy little little storyboards and he's got things in the background that he wants in the background you know the you know the telegraph poles on one side and that and, it's and so you're figuring out that from the yeah from the relationship between foreground well, and you background can, you and can find it you can find the spot where he's drawn it from on in on the location or on the set you can go there and say oh there we are wow. there's the tree there and there's the doorway over there and yeah and does he think in terms of focal lengths when he's drawing them yes or he, he does he does well he was he did do camera work as a uh, when he was much younger right when he was starting off in england and so on so he's one of those directors that's very conscious of yeah he's aware he's he knows exactly what the camera does which is mm. again heaven you know yeah. when you've got somebody like that he knows exactly how the editing is going to go exactly we're going to end the scene on this shot and we're going to start the next cut on an extreme wide shot or an extreme close-up or something he's got that planned out all the transitions are built and in. You, you mentioned that he's, he's that ge- precise with the actors as well very precise with the actors that's that's the genius of it of him really is that and good directors is that they they've already got the film in their head you know they've got Mm. the whole film in their head and he knows exactly where it's going he may play around with it a bit in the editing room i'm sure he does you know i'm never there so i wouldn't know but generally it's what he's told me in pre-production it's what you see on the screen and and that's what you see and and what it is on the storyboard you know you know you, you can see you can sort of get a feeling where it's going where it's going and often he'll he'll cross the line he'll he'll do master from one angle so you've got your all your actors are backlit and all of a sudden he jumps to the other side of the line where everybody's front lit. You go, oh, my God, Bruce. <laughs> First time he did that to me, I died. I definitely died. I said, oh, God, we've done the major, you know, we've done a, a 180 degree reverse and now the backlight's the front light. I said, it's, it's going to look terrible. It's going to jar. So I moved all the, the front light around to the side and made it more of a cross light. Yeah. But I was always I was aware of him after that. If it's more than a page and a half, he'll probably jump across the line. And he said, "Oh, it keeps the audience on their toes. He yeah. said, it keeps them interested." But it takes a lot of skill to do that in a way that works, and and there are ways that it works. Oh, it's simple techniques. Often yeah. it might be somebody getting up from the table and then mm. using that little bit of action out of a close up to cut to the other side is completely acceptable. Yeah, yeah. The audience doesn't have any problem with that, and that sort of goes. To 
so the, the Canadian director, Adam Yagoyan, who he's actually from Eastern Europe somewhere, but the, he, his films, I love his films. I heard him talk once in uh, Austin at the South by Southwest Festival. Films are like dreams. We all have dreams mm. and, and our mind jumps around and does all sorts, yep. all sorts of things in a dream. You know, it's, it's quite crazy, you know. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, you can even fly around and do things. And so people take to films very easily because they're, they're basically like dreams. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so you see... And as long as it doesn't break the audience out of the illusion, then well, like a, like, like a Marvel film where they're, you know, they're flying through the air and all yep. that sort of stuff. It's just like your dream when, yeah, you're, yeah. You know, when you're dreaming. We, we all relate very easily to film. And there is something very dreamlike about the cinematic experience. Yeah. Oh, it is. It taps right in there mm. yeah, to your subconscious, really. People will accept almost anything. Look at some of the rubbish that comes out. You know, there's no <laughs> logic to the to the shots or yep. to the storytelling. But people go with it. But they flow. They go along with it. If they're in the film, they go. They'll go along with it. Yeah, yeah. They'll go, they'll go with the flow. If you haven't got their attention, if you haven't got their their loyalty, they'll dig their heels in and they won't like it at all. You know, mm. it'll, it'll be resistance. And that's why I think, like in, say, a comedy, it's, it's nice to have a laugh in the first five minutes, a really good laugh. It can be anything at all, but just get the audience to laugh. Yeah, and then you've got them in I that I don't care what it is, but once they give, give themselves permission to laugh, you've got them and they'll relax and they'll enjoy the film. But the earlier, earlier you make them laugh, the better. That's my tip as a... It's a comedy. It's a good one. DP. <laughs> but coverage is one of those mercurial things. You know, this, the five Caesar cinematography teaches you coverage. Yeah. No, nothing wrong with the five Caesar cinematography. I love it. I think it's still everybody should still read, the, read yeah, it. It's yeah. still the 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 Bible of of what. And if you understand what it's all about, that's great. But that's you, the jumping off point. That's your. That's then put it away and, yeah. and then go and do something else. Go and do what you think is going to make make it interesting. And of course, with digital and um, uh, little rigs and things we've got now, where you can, you know, there's. I just saw a new little handheld body brace thing that was really looks very comfortable and very puts all the weight on your hips and yeah. you know it's quite a good thing and these other little poor man steadicam type devices and steadicam itself i love steadicam mm. i love to i love it's to a use wonderful it. tool isn't it it's a, you know with, in the hands of a good operator it's it's sensational the thing i, I love about steadicam is i think to me it's the thing that most closely replicates the way we actually experience the world yes the way we walk through yeah, life just go, just go through it yeah. yeah and then and take the audience with you this yeah. is this is I, I love it for that mm. reason and i like to do shots which are developing shots on on like a master that that develops through with a steady cam you know shooting in all directions it's very naturalistic and uh, i'd like to see more of that I yeah think that's uh, it's a good as long as you can com- choreograph the performance so that it the actors work it works for the actors as well then i think just go would go with it yeah, and, uh, it can be an amazing dance. Yeah, it can be an amazing dance and, uh, you know, you, they'll, they'll shadow one another and they'll cross one another and there'll be, mm. you know, different angles and sometimes you'll favour one more than the other. As long as you're doing it at the right time when you're trying to tell the story, that's and that's part of the dance, you know, is, is where you put the camera compared to the actors or ask the actors to move and, and sw- change sides, you know. Do it in such a way that they own it that they haven't been told to do it, yep. that they feel comfortable and they want to do it. So, so it's you, part of their performance. It's part of their performance. And mm. um, 
you may have to rehearse it a little bit, but once you've got it, you've got this wonderful thing. Like, like, like uh, Rick Linklater did those um, before sunrise sets and mm. those films of it before, yep. you know, before sunset, before sunrise, before midnight, and all this. Yeah. Stuff. And there's a couple of scenes in there where he's done long steady cam shots, which are a walking backwards steady cam shot that goes on for about five minutes. And there's a couple of intercuts to a, a shot from behind and then back again to the same shot. And uh, it works completely well because you, we all know they're on the way to a certain place where the film ends and mm. you're interested in what they're saying and how they're saying it. You know, you're really in there with those two actors and the same as these dinner tables conversations that he did, which was probably the best dinner t- table conversation I've ever seen. They can be so hard to shoot. Oh, Nightman, he did such a good job on that. Yeah, one. yeah. That's the best. I think he had three cameras and the matching, the whole family, you know, it's about 12 people, children, old people, everything going on. It's a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. And it's so, it cuts together so well. It's unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. The line crossing, it's a total masterclass in dinner table stuff. So one of the, the, I guess, biggest changes that's happened in the industry in recent years is, I guess, the rise of digital, Mm. both in terms of cameras and in post-production. What's that experience been like for you? I love it. Yeah, I think it's great. You can still get a filmish look if you if you want it for a period film or something like that. Ladies in Black, we gave it a bit of a film look. We used old Panavision lenses, E's and C's. I used uh, black Promis Tiffin filters and some black tulle on the camera. In the grading, I changed, you know, I vignetted it all. Mm. And uh, like he- every shot's got heavy vignetting on it, every every shot. And Which you just couldn't do with a photochemical finish. No, you couldn't do that photochemically. But it, it gives it much more of a painterly look. Mm. I, w- I want to put together a PowerPoint where I've, I've been photographing art gallery paintings and relate that to the cinematographer's uh, digital grading techniques. Oh, wow. And give, it, and, and give a talk about that. I think that would be fascinating. Think, yeah, because I think some of the old masters, you look at... The, the techniques are all there. They're all there, like Goya, yeah. Vasquez, you know, Rembrandt. You know, yeah. It goes through the whole lot. Uh, yeah. You know, Hopper, Sargent. Um, so much of Monet. lighting and grading you yeah. can learn from Caravaggio, Rembrandt. you know, like they're all there. They're all the classics are yeah, there. Yeah. And then some of the abstracted ones and mm. some of the um, the Scandinavians in, the, in that northern light um, mm. country. I use that for a reference on film with Albert Finney and that was Rich in Love. That's what I say about having the big picture, having the big dream for Mm. what a film should look like and often I go to my reference library and have a look or go on the internet and drag up pictures Mm. and find uh, a reference that is absolutely right for the film. That inspires the whole production. I take it to the production people. Great way to have everyone on the same page. Yeah, I get get a copy of it for everybody and give it to them. This is my look I'm going for, you know, so that they know that the faces are going to be quite dark or they're going to be quite burnt out on one side Mm. or... Yeah, the, the key and the liner will be on the same side, not on the opposite side. I imagine that would give you something for you to go back to through that, you know, that long process of doing oh, the film. Yes. Well, that, and, just, and just to remind yourself, this is what I'm doing. Yeah, well, that one with Albert again, uh, I had postcards of, of uh, Edward Hopper on the uh, geared head. Wow. So the, to, remind, us, to remind ourselves that we're doing Edward Hopper. Because Hopper divided his canvases into nine and always there was two blank sections in the or more so sometimes three and erish was operating for me and uh, he, he did uh, miss daisy and 
or one or two others. Um, he, he good, good, very good operator. He also does Steadicam, so he was he was really good. I said, Erish, remember it's Edward Hopper we're doing here. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was great fun. It just stops it from being boring or, yeah. or being pre- what you did last film. It stops you falling into those conventions, like what you normally do. It makes, stops you going on autopilot. <laughs> yeah, it makes the film into something else, which yeah. is like Paradise Road. We, we did that anamorphic, which Bruce, Bruce didn't particularly like anamorphic, but he, he does now because the original TVs, the old square TVs, you, you lost too much of the picture on the, uh, on the yeah. side. So yeah. unless you put a letterbox version on which they rarely did for television. Yeah. Nowadays they'll do it more often I'll do mm. a 240 cut on a yep. 16 by 9 screen. So I shot all the women in that uh, concentration camp on uh, anamorphic on a like a 300 or a 600 mil lens. Wow. And then the Japanese soldiers I shot their wide shots on a 40 mil lens, which is like equivalent to a 20 mil lens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, standard lens. Uh, so the the women had this huge compression of the of the telephoto Lens, but what that did is it gave them a massive amount of solidarity, mm. which it's a subliminal thing. And the Japanese uh, soldiers, it, it made a lot out of the coconut palms going up, and they were yeah. like they were like prison bars, right? Wow. So they were prisoners of the jungle, whereas the the women had this solidarity of the, of one another. Wow, and. Uh, and it's quite moving when the film's all edited. Just as a shot for shot, it doesn't mean much. They're just interesting images. But the subliminal thing mm, is quite powerful. When you when you use this technique all the time, it accumulates mm. throughout an hour and a half. I first found that on The Irishman, when, which was 1977, <laughs> did that. And Johnny Seal was my camera operator. Wow. And he, as he was on Caddy, how lucky was I to have, you know, John <laughs> Seal as my camera operator when I first started. That was, wow. I never had to worry about the camera, you know. He looked after that. I just did the lighting. <laughs> It was fantastic. He was a brilliant operator, or still is a brilliant operator, but he was so inventive and, you know, just just the best. He wanted to have the horizon in the bottom third of the frame uh, all the way through the film so that when we went to the jungle, all the trees fill up the frame. I said, wow. well, I said, well, good, let's just do that. So yeah. we, we did that. And also I based that film on the paintings of Ray Crook, who's an Australian painter, where he always painted the exterior at the correct exposure whereas English painters paint the Australian exterior five stops over. I wanted the, the exterior to be like basically a stop over and the inside to be about four stops under. So we used a huge amount of light, as you can imagine, to bring the shadows of the interiors and, and to bring the light from the outside inside to lift it up. Uh, I had big reflectors made, I painted them apricot that were you know, nine foot by nine foot. We could fold them up and put them in the trucks and we had... We'd set them up because everybody had hats on and uh, to get some fill light from the sun. And we'd also set them around verandas and bounce the light in and then use brutes as cross light on the veranda coming wow. through lattice. And so that was quite heavy fighter power to, to get the look. But in the end, there's a scene with Robin Nevin at, at the house and in the background you can see the, the yards where the horses were and there's no horses anymore, they're all gone. And there's just like there's a willy-willy coming along and the, the end credits roll up and um, I burst into tears and I thought, why am I so moved by this film? It's not that, it's not that moving. You know, it's a nice film but it's not... Like that good. <laughs> <laughs> I realised it, it was that she was never, a, like Robin was not alone. She had the Australian countryside to keep her company. 
and and the same with everybody in the film. They all had the Australian countryside to keep them company. Very, it was very moving to me. And I didn't realise I'd done it. I didn't know it would work until I saw it with an audience. And it was, it was, a, it was a complete revelation to me. And that, that was... That was just that, the exposure. The accumulation, accumulation of those visuals. Accumulation of all those visuals, yeah. And then somebody said, oh, it's like a John Ford movie. And I said, who's John Ford? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I went and saw a stagecoach or something yeah. to see what it... And they said, oh, it's nothing like a John Ford movie. But, but I could see what they were saying. It was it, where the exterior is not overexposed and, that the mm. you know, there's great depth of field and, you know, everything is on medium lenses or wide lenses and it's got this feeling for the environment and... Well, that came from trying to imitate Ray Crook's work, but mm. um, maybe that's what I saw in Ray Crook's work was the environment was, yeah. was very well painted and very much there, even though the shot, the main image is a, a girl in the shade with a, some embroidery. But it's still that relationship to the environment. It's the relationship to the exterior. Yeah. yeah. So that's why it's important to read the script in every film and, and allow yourself that big dream to come in and to influence your, whichever way it influences everybody gets influenced differently that's the brilliant thing about cinematography there's no right or wrong way to do this and everybody's right we all <laughs> I remember sitting next to Dante Spinotti at the ASC once and we're in the um, technical meeting and there's there's the head colour scientist from Kodak and the old guy who invented the flying spot scanner and some other dude and they're having this incredible fight like they're, they're <laughs> And Dante says, I think they'll have to take it out to the car park, you know. <laughs> it was getting to fisticuffs and it went on for about 20 minutes and everybody's embarrassed and it's, they just would not give up on this thing. And, um, and I said to Dante, I said, well, we would never fight like that. I'd just say, no, buggy, you're wrong. You know? <laughs> I, I, I'm doing it this way. And he said, he said yes, exactly. Because everyone has their own way. Every, everyone has their own way. But with scientists, there is only one way <laughs> and, it's, and it's their way and it's yeah. the right way. Anyway, it turned to resolve it. The chairman, I think it was Curtis Clark, said, gentlemen, gentlemen, I think you're, we're, you're both agreeing just that we haven't, got a, we haven't come up, invented a definition yet as to what this thing is. <laughs> Is. It was like it was like setting the standards for film back in '44, where what sound film would look like, what the aspect ratio would yeah. be, where the soundtrack would go on the film, all that sort of stuff. So we had to write all that stuff. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was torturous, absolutely torturous. And you can see pe- people were so passionate about it, but they were. They were both agreeing, but they hadn't. They couldn't verbalise the. There was no term. They didn't have the language yet. The language wasn't invented. Yeah. It is now, but yeah, you know, and that was that was early stages of digital. So you know, it was five years of that was was quite quite tricky. There was a lot of writing the rule book that mm. went on in those early stages, and there was, I think, from my perspective, there was a lot of unnecessary rewriting of the rule book as well in Fun- a lot of ways. Well, the artistic fundamentals basically, well, I think they'll they'll stay. You yeah. know, I don't think yeah. there's any reason to change the. Like they say, the five C's cinematography. I think still is just as relevant. Is is still relevant. Yeah. But whether you choose to follow it is another. Yeah. We now have a more artistic license Mm. to to change the change the rules. And I think one one of the interesting areas that has kind of opened up with digital is probably because the cameras bring less texture or whatever it is to it. There's more scope to put a look onto something with lenses. Well, I think you have to do it with lenses and with different cameras. Because mm. we would use film stocks for 
to change our canvas. Now you've got to use change your camera to change your canvas. Or you can do it later on when you get into the post-production, yep. into the suite. Like on Mao's Last Dancer, we, I designed a, a look for that, for the China look. But I shot that on film and I only shot on half the amount of emulsion. I had a ground glass that was only 50% of the, um, really? of the 35 mil frame and then we blew it up. So I shot with wider angle lenses. For the, the China? For the China bit. Wow. Yeah. And I also uh, underexposed it a stop and a half. So it was really... Very distinctly different Yeah, look. grainy and noisy. I couldn't get digital noise in those days because I wanted the film to look like the China film. I wanted it to look like a 16mm um, documentary on probably old Eastman colour or, yeah. or with the look of ectochrome, mm. yeah, where the, um, the whites were um, slightly magenta pink and the shadows, the blacks, were cyan green. And was that a photochemical finish or a digital? It was a digital finish, but we shot on film. Yeah. And then for the American stuff, I used full frame and full and correct exposure because China in, in the um, 80s was um, bicycles. I was there, you know. It was wow. Nixon diplomacy time. I was there in Shanghai and it was, it was extraordinarily primitive. But today it's like New York. And I wanted to get that rapid change. So when we come back to China at the end, it's full frame. Right, and yeah. People have wow. got colour in their wardrobe and yeah. there's no restriction in, you know, there's, 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 you know it's colourful and springtime and it's optimistic. Mm. Like using seasons too is another thing to you know, help us tell the story. I love that. Like yeah. on, in Caddy we had four seasons in that film and there were four different looks, different diffusions and black diffusion fog filters and pink chiffon nets and God, I can't remember how many, like there was every, every season was different. Yeah. So again, that was trying to change the texture of the canvas. So I think like using old lenses on digital is a great thing. If you want something really clinical, that's good, you know, go, go for the really clinical brand new lenses. They're, mm. they're, they're better than ever before. They're fantastic. Yeah. They're amazingly good. And the cameras, are with, don't be frightened to break the definition down. On Ladies in Black, I had some stock footage cut in and I had to degrade all the other footage either side of the cut so it would blend in and not right. stand out. But the first pass, when we just cut it in, it looked terrible. The old footage looked really bad and we played around with that and got a bit better. Mm. Like sharpened it up, got rid of the grain and did things to it. But then on the other sides of the cuts, uh, there's a whole beach scene which I shot that mm. had to be go into it. I then added grain to that and changed... Meat in the middle. Yeah, <laughs> reduced the resolution down and I kept on saying to Trish Carl, said, how much more can we go before this thing's <laughs> going to fall apart? And she said, oh, no, it's okay. We're still, we're still there. We, yeah. can, we can do it. So we did. We just really... She said, I've never used so much um, de-resolution in a shot. And then when we ran it, it looked completely okay. It worked. They, they, all, they all belonged to one another. People do get very obsessed about resolution. Oh, yes. As long as the pictures are moving, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. As long as they stall on you or something, you know, break yeah, up yeah. and pixelate or something. There's no need to have such massive amounts of mm. re resolution. But having said that, I remember... One of the first speeches, I'm, I think the first speech I made I, when I was on the committee for um, digital standards in, at the ASC, I was very quiet for the first two months. I didn't say much at all because uh, you're in a room full of people, men, all men, all old men, who had invented digital. 
you know, they'd invented television. <laughs> and um, it was pretty awesome, you know, to be surrounded by these pioneers. And I said, well, when we have 24K capture and 16K exhibition, we'll be talking. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody looked at me and thought, who the hell's this guy? <laughs> I said, but I, I said, really, the only reason to be really happy is when digital is capable of doing IMAX quality images. Then we can see ourselves as an improved, as an option, you know, yeah. as an option. Yeah. Um, I love large format. I, I take large format photographs, uh, old school, you know, the film, 4x5. I'm, I'm just going through them at the moment and the quality in those pictures is just outstanding. Like wow. it's unbelievable. And the perspective and the compression that you get, like you're taking a shot on a 64mm lens which is actually the same as a 14mm on a 35mm yeah, motion picture wow. camera. So it's a 65mm lens giving you the the width of a 14mm. And yet still with the characteristics of a 65mm. With the characteristics of 65mm, yeah. Because you've got a, you know, you've got a, a longer lens on, mm. a, on a wide back. Yeah. yeah. What do you think about the the larger image sensor cameras that we're starting to see now? Oh, I think they're marvelous. I think that the new um, Arri camera with the, uh, the LF, the LF yeah. yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a move in the right direction as far mm. as all the lenses that you can. You have a lot of big choice of lenses that will cover that field. Yeah. The moment you go bigger than that, the moment you go into the sixty five mil sort of, you know, three chip size, that's really narrow. Yeah. Down. You, you, your choice of lenses gets to be very small. But I, I still prefer that. I, I, I love large format and I love anamorphic for the same reason because you're getting compression again. I like that compressed look. So you're shooting on uh, longer lenses for wider images, which is nicer. If you're doing anamorphic, well, then it's even more so, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you have to go then to super anamorphic lenses and so on. So that, that becomes a bit of a deal. Mm. There's not many of them around. But the LF cameras are fine. Like you can put any stills lens on it. Gives you a lot of options. Yeah, I think that I think that's a great system. Eventually, I think even some of the digital people are asking for larger 8K and so on. So that's only going to keep on rising as we like. It's Moore's law, isn't it? It's going, yeah, yeah. It's going to keep on advancing. So I don't think it's going to be too much longer before it'll be up to what I recommended with <laughs> 24K capture. Well, like you know, the, the, uh, I remember the early days of digital and and working with full HD was mm. was such a big deal. It was so difficult, so difficult for post and oh the file. Well, remember, remember the 4K file was yeah. like just about shut shut down yeah. e-film at one stage yeah, they, yeah. They had, that lab they had they had to put in all new storage yeah. and um you know facilities like quadruple their storage facilities cost yeah. a fortune didn't change anything else but just this just this back room the storage yeah. whereas now working with 4k is a non-event it's just so easy yeah yeah so well it eventually becomes easier yeah know? yeah so it'll be 8k next and then 16k and then 24k <laughs> <laughs> Probably another 10 years we'll probably be saying, oh, yes. And I guess that just gives you options. It gives you a, you know, this high-resolution starting point to start adding diffusion and all that. Well, from. You, you can even add even more. Yeah. You know, you can you can really, and I think post-production will become much more sophisticated as a result because that'll get better and you'll be able to target all sorts of areas that mm. you, you can't target accurately. You really target into your blacks and target into your highlights and, you know, you can, you know, you'll have a more dynamic range. Like, you know, dynamic range is a big deal now of uh, TVs and that will get even more resourceful and being able to 
play with different textures in different in different tonal ranges and things mm. like that will be interesting. Wow, that's an interesting thought. Become very painterly. It's exciting. Yeah, there's no reason why not. It's up yeah. to it's up to us to do it. You know, to play with it, take the blacks and in one direction and the whites in another direction, play with them separately and put them back together again. I think that would be great fun. Peter, thanks for stopping in. Good. It's great. 